0: Welcome to this constitution unit seminar on devolution and the future of the union. I'm Robert Hazel, professor of government and the constitution sitting here in my office at UCL. And I was the founder of the constitution unit. It was 25 years ago that the unit was founded. And this seminar is the last in a whole series of tweets, blog posts and seminars held this year to mark our first 25 years the latest being Francesca Klug's blog published today about constitutional reform over the last 25 years. So many thanks to Meg Russell, my successor as director of the unit for allowing me to chair today's seminar and many thanks to all the unit's friends and associates for all your contributions to our work over the last 25 years. It's appropriate that our four speakers today have all had long-standing involvement with the unit. From Scotland, we have Michael Keating, who contributed to a book we did on Scottish independence almost 20 years ago. From Northern Ireland, Cathy Gormley-Heenan, a member of our working group on unification referendums on the island of Ireland, whose interim report was published last week. From the Wales Governance Centre in Cardiff, Professor Laura McAllister. I think our most recent work, Laura, with you, was Alan Rennick's contribution uh, to the working group that you chaired um, on reform of the Welsh Assembly now the Welsh Parliament, the Senate. And from England, we have John Denham, former Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government, now Professorial Fellow in English Identity and Politics at the University of Southampton. After a few minutes of opening remarks from each speaker, we'll have some brief discussion among the panel before opening up for audience questions. The questions will be facilitated by Alan Rennick, Deputy Director of the unit. If you'd like to put a question to the panel, please write it in the chat, but do so in a private message to Alan Rennick rather than to everyone on the call. He'll then select a broad range of questions to read out. This whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded. And after the event, it'll be posted on the Constitution Unit's YouTube channel. Each of the speakers is going to talk initially just for five minutes about the devolution story so far And its future trajectory. And with that, I'll hand over to our first speaker, Michael Keating, speaking to us today from Edinburgh. Michael, over to you.
1: Uh, Thank you, Robert, and thanks for the invitation to come to this 25th anniversary or to participate in the 25th anniversary event for the Constitution Unit. As you said, I've been involved in the unit for the whole 25 years since it started. And the way things are going, I'm sure you've got another 25 years before you. I've been asked to talk about Scottish devolution in five minutes, 20 years in five minutes. I just want to draw attention to some key developments in this. The first point I want to make is that Scottish devolution has always been a very ambivalent project, as indeed have the other constitutional settlements in the United Kingdom. For some, it is just a modification of a unitary state, a phrase that the UK government continues to use. For others, the United Kingdom is a union of self-governing nations, which come together for common purposes. That's always been there, these conflicting interpretations, but devolution has given an institutional form to that, and there are different readings then seen in the constitutional debates about what it means. For other people, again, devolution is a federalizing project. We're not going to be a federation, but it's to be interpreted as some kind of federalizing uh, direction of, of travel. Now, in the devolution settlements, all these issues were left in abeyance for very good reasons that if you can't agree on the fundamental foundations of a settlement, maybe you shouldn't be talking about them at all. Uh, but occasionally, these foundational issues become important, and that has happened, of course, in recent years because of a number of constitutional crises. Uh, a second point is that throughout most of the devolution odyssey, the public opinion in Scotland has favoured more devolution, but it rarely until recently favored independence. That is, it is focused on third ways, variously called devolution max, independence, light, post-sovereignty, uh, and so on. And this it took us even through the independence referendum of 2014, where in the course of the campaign, the pro-independence side moved towards something that its opponents called independence light. Whereas the pro union side moved towards devolution the max, there was an extraordinary convergence. And the real question for the public is how do you get to that elusive middle ground? And even after the referendum, the surveys that we did showed that although uh, a significant number of people had moved from no to yes, if you gave them a whole menu of choices, all the way from centralization to independence, the largest number, the plurality of voters still plucked for something in the middle and it's very important to keep that in mind because that has begun to change rather. And there's been in the last few years a certain polarization of independence voters and pro-unionist voters and the middle ground has been disappearing. Part of this is the effect of the referendum itself. Once independence is offered as a choice that is the supply of options changes the political demand changes. We saw this with Brexit. There were not that many people who favoured leaving the European Union until that was on the table, and that became the definition of being a Eurosceptic, leaving altogether. we are seeing something similar in the Scottish case. So during the campaign, support for independence went from something like 30% to 45%, and it never came down again. That's the new floor for Scottish independence. Then there was the Brexit vote when Scotland voted to remain and England and Wales voted to leave. That didn't have an immediate effect, but over time that has changed. It didn't have an immediate effect because we know from the surveys that about 30% of pro-independence votes actually voted to leave and that the SNP has historically not succeeded in convincing people as a logical link between being independent and being part of Europe That lasted until the, until the Brexit referendum of 2016, that has begun to change now, and recent surveys including some work that David McCrone and I did recently shows there's an increasing alignment between supporting independence and opposing Brexit and vice versa, being strongly unionist and pro-Brexit. This is reflected in voting behaviour that the SNP has lost its, many of its, Anti-European voters, but it's gained uh, pro in, it's, it's gained uh, pro-European voters. The Conservative Party has gained uh, pro-Brexit voters. Uh, the No to Independence side has gained pro-Brexit voters. So there is an increasing alignment between unionism and Euroscepticism, and nationalism, and being in favour of Europe. Now that's perhaps not surprising because the third way is very difficult to sustain in the context of Brexit, but it's also because of a socialisation and the way that Scottish politics has realigned to an extraordinary degree around the poles of nationalism and unionism. That wasn't the case even in 2014. It's increasingly the place place
0: It's all good. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for coming.
1: The other factor is the way that Scotland over 20 years, but particularly recently has, emerged as a political community, as the primary reference point of politics, so the focus is on Holyrood much more than Westminster, it's on the Scottish government much more than the UK government and the handling of the Covid crisis has merely reflected that, It hasn't caused it, it's reflected that because the Covid crisis has allowed the Scottish government to occupy the political space there to be perceived as the leader of the response to COVID. We know it's actually intergovernmental, but perceived as being setting the uh, agenda there. That's just a crystallization of what has been developing over the years. The result of that is support for independence is scoring regularly more than 50%, which is a majority, but it's not a decisive majority. Uh, but nevertheless, however independence is framed, it still comes down to interdependence. Uh, the strong sovereignty arguments now are being made in British politics by pro-Brexit unionists uh, and nationalism is increasingly seen as a kind of post-sovereign way of managing interdependencies. Now, I was gonna say something about the UK government, but I saw it's on the questions for the uh, second session, Uh, just to say that the UK government itself has shifted from a strategy which we used to call devolve and neglect the very active unionism, a muscular unionism, defending the union and engaging in purpose and strategies to promote unionism uh, in Scotland. That has further served to distance unionism from nationalism. So whereas uh, in, when, when, when we started the Constitution Senate 25 years ago, there was unionism, nationalism, there was left and, and, and right, politics in Scotland was increasingly organized around the poles of unionism and nationalism. And that old third way is rapidly disappearing as a political option.
0: Thank you, Michael, um, for launching us to a flying start. And forgive me if I interrupted you. while well, my technical support people were just putting their heads around the door to see whether all was going well. Um, so without further ado, let's move on to Cathy gorn from Ulster. Cathy, over to you. Have we lost Kathy? If Kathy can't join us, then shall we go to Laura McAllister in Cardiff?
2: Shall I go ahead, Robert? I can see Kathy's back, but let me let me kick off. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, my, my role is to say a little bit about Wales, where I hesitate to call devolution a roller coaster journey, um, but for those of us who've worked closely around this, it certainly has been a journey that's progressed at some pace, um, but. There's two reasons why, why I wouldn't call it a roller coaster journey. First, because the, the trajectory has been very clear in one way. It's been fairly straightforward towards gaining additional powers for the initial assembly and then subsequently for the Senate or the Welsh Parliament. So it's been less. Uh, Uh, up and down and more uh, linear in its journey. It's been breathtaking because actually, I think the pace of change in the model of devolution has been more radical than than virtually anywhere else in the UK. And of course, there's a reason for that. And that is because the initial model of devolution that we had back in 1999 was so fundamentally flawed that we've spent the best part of two decades trying to establish a workable model um, for a parliamentary system of uh, politics here in Wales. Those, those of you who are familiar with the original model will remember it as being very much what we, I think we can call in colloquial terms, the back of a fag packet model, which essentially was a corporate body with no division between the executive and legislature, with ministers sitting on subject committees and uh, scrutiny committees and so on, and with just executive uh, devolved powers. And we've moved really in the course of two decades to having a parliament or senate that in, in every sense, um, reflects the normal uh, ideas and expectations from a parliamentary system. So a lot, a lot has happened, but I have to say most of it has been fairly invisible. Um, Wales is very much the quiet part of the devolved map. Um, and what I'll go on to say why that's changed recently, but I think mostly it's been roundly ignored by the rest of the UK and, and indeed by many people within Wales as well. Turnout in devolved elections has been uniformly poor. We haven't yet hit the 50% mark, so very much in line with the kind of academic understandings of second order elections. And of course, that came off the back of a pretty low level of endorsement in the original uh, referendum back in 1997. However, things have progressed at pace constitutionally during that time, as I said. So we have a reserved model of devolution. We've had a whole suite of commissions and inquiries which for my sins I've sat on quite a few of Um, and in all of those and they were all necessary by the way because the the original model was so fundamentally flawed but in all of those the trajectory has been about gaining um, a clearer model of devolution with more competence whether that's over powers or over fiscal or over financial responsibilities. I think the other thing to say is politically the history of devolution in Wales has been one of one-partyism. Labour has been in power in every single uh, assembly or parliament, often as part of a deal or a coalition, sometimes with Plaid Cymru, sometimes with the Lib Dems, and always with deals, other than uh, very rarely. Um, And that's had an impact on both politics and the constitution, actually. I mean, I think Labour last lost an election nationally in Wales back in the 1920s. So we've had 100 years of Labour winning elections. And of course, you should never blame a party for winning elections. It's the fault of the opposition for not defeating them. But what it's actually done, I think, is create a certain lack of uh, or a certain lack of cultural pluralism amongst the political um, establishment, because generally pluralism is the friend of competition and renewal. And being in government for so long has, has created a certain stasis around Welsh politics. Um, Traditionally, Labour has been has played the role of being a good unionist party in terms of its dealings with uh, the UK government and with the rest of the, the UK state. But that's changed quite a lot recently for two obvious reasons, one being Brexit. And despite Wales having voted in a broadly similar way to England in favour of leave, um, there's been quite a lot of churn since the Brexit vote with the Labour government particularly flexing its muscles over power grab, most recently, of course, in terms of the uh, uh, internal market bill, but more generally over conventions that it feels have been threatened or challenged. Um, Part of that is what I think is in response to what Michael uh, described as a more active unionism. And I think that's been also a more assimilationist unionism as well, which I think has made Welsh Labour sit up a little and flex its muscles more. And that leads me into COVID. I think In all honesty, my take on the impact of COVID and the public policy surrounding the pandemic has been incredible in Wales. We've gone from a situation where virtually nobody uh, recognised our First Minister to uh, him being someone that uh, people talk about regularly, people understand far more about what the Senate can actually do and what powers the Welsh Government executes. And broadly speaking, they have been reassured by... Um, the First Minister's interventions over COVID. So in all of our polling, including the Welsh Barometer poll conducted by uh, my colleague Roger Owen Scully at uh, the Welsh Governance Centre, we see significant differences in terms of approval and support for the Welsh Government as compared to the UK Government. So in the most recent polls, we see figures in the high 50s uh, in terms of approval for, for the First Minister, and, and low 20s for the UK government's interventions over COVID. Now, that's not to say he's uniformly popular. And as the pubs prepare to close at 6pm tonight, and we're hearing um, on social media that the First Minister has now been banned from every pub in Wales by disgruntled uh, publicans, I think we can safely say that all is not happy amongst uh, the business community. But nevertheless, uh, there, there, there has been broad approval for the interventions that the uh, Welsh government has has made so I think Covid more than Brexit has really given a kind of new life to devolution and a new reality and a new uh, visibility to the the government as well and then just finally a word on independence because I think it is important in that recent poll in Wales shows that around a quarter would support independence should there be a vote um, tomorrow and I think that comes from Again, comes less from from Brexit actually, although there is a Brexit factor, and more from the handling of the, the pandemic. But there are two interesting things, or maybe three interesting things quickly to say about that uh, uh, figure of support for independence. First of all, where it comes from, it comes largely from younger people. So the figures amongst the younger two age bands are much higher. And of course we know we've got votes at 16 coming in in Wales in May for the Senate election. So that would be a part of any future discussion. And secondly, the biggest growth is amongst Labour supporters, which I think tells you something about a, a change amongst traditional Labour voters with regard to the whole constitutional question. Um, and thirdly, I think what we're also seeing in our polling is a big, big rise in what we call the Indy curious, those people who could be persuaded to vote yes in an independence referendum subject to contextual factors. And when we test that against a range of what those contextual factors are, generally that figure increases regardless of what the contextual factor is. So I think, you know, we, we, when you look at where Scotland was maybe a decade ago in terms of levels of support for independence, there is a degree of comparability. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we're on the same journey as Scotland in Wales, but it, but it is an important factor and is being discussed much more readily, not just by the academic community, but by the wider community uh, in Wales at the moment.
3: Robert, uh, Robert, you're on mute.
0: Thank you, I unmuted myself, forgive me. Uh, thank you, Laura. Now let's see whether we can go back to Cathy Gormley-Heenan and Ulster.
4: Thanks very much, Robert, and apologies for that. You always crash out at the most inopportune moment, so thank you. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the story so far, the current state of play, and then a few observations about the future, which which chimes with what we've heard already. Now, I think I'll I'll preface what I say by um, a point that I make all of the time, although you can never make it enough, which is that Northern Ireland's different from the rest of the UK for many reasons and already has a long history of both governing itself and uh, direct rule from Westminster. And we had very different motivations for introducing devolution after 1998 from the rest of, of the UK. So I think it's important to stress at the outset that devolution was in our case part of the answer to a much more profound legitimacy crisis so there may be elements of a legitimacy crisis in in experience in other parts of the UK um, at the minute but in our case it was a large majority or a large minority of the population regarding the entire British state, at least as it extended to the island of Ireland, as lacking in legitimacy and that led, as you all know, to to much conflict. So the motivation was different, but the style and form of devolution was also very different. So unique to Northern Ireland, our devolved arrangements was a system of consociationalism or, or power sharing between the two main community groupings, unionism and nationalism. And there could be no majority rule in Northern Ireland's bespoke form of devolution. And it's interesting to hear um, Laura's comments that Labour have have always been part of the the government um, construct in in Wales. Uh, But in Northern Ireland's case, this was um, critical for the new settlement to gain any sort of legitimacy. Now um, your 21st birthday or your coming of age is always a a pause for reflection and many of us were reflecting um, last year on the the 21st birthday or anniversary um, in terms of the successes or otherwise? Has this more bespoke form of devolution been successful or not? And for some people, that's just simply been measured by the absence of violence. If the motivation for devolution in Northern Ireland was different from elsewhere, then the measurement of its success has been a bit different as well. So some people just um, measured success in terms of the absence of violence, and other people measured it um, in terms of the absence of violence, but a function functioning assembly and executive and for other people still that wasn't enough and they needed to see the absence of violence a functioning set of institutions and positive community relations between the two communities as the measures of success so you know very quickly what's what's the verdict well it's definitely delivered a reduction in violence as you'll know there were about three and a half thousand people who died during the 30-year conflict and it's estimated that had we not had devolution another 2,400 people may have lost their lives over the last 21 years so it has reduced the level of violence but it hasn't necessarily resolved the underlying causes of off that balance. Uh, did it deliver a government? Sort of. Um, since 1998, cumulatively speaking, Northern Ireland has been without a fully functioning set of institutions for about eight years. So not quite half, but more than a third of its time um, has, has been without devolved institutions up and running. So that would indicate only partial success, um, if, if we use that term functioning as a measure of success. And the intention, of course, that, that, that of the devolved institutions was about power sharing. And the reality is, as I have coined it, is was much more a, a, a construct of power snaring were ministers' portfolios and the construct in which they found themselves um, allowed them to frustrate the plans of of one another, um, of each of the ministerial portfolios. And that actually was enshrined in the St Andrews Agreement, which made provisions for a revised statutory Ministerial code um, in which all sections of the community would be protected. Now, the intention was to stop ministers from being able to go off on solo policy runs. That when you were responsible for a department, you could take forward your political party's agenda and not seek that common ground on a cross-community basis. But the practical outworkings of the the attempt to to stop those solo runs has been this uh, consistent and continuous entrapment of one another if, if all parties don't agree with, with policy proposals. um So so there have been problems there. And then the last one, of course, is in terms of reconciliation, you know, is the measure of success that, that we have a different type of society. Well, um, reconciliation hasn't been mainstreamed in, in Northern Ireland. More than 93% Of children and young people are still educated in exclusively Catholic or Protestant ethos schools, and that's 21 years on. And the interface barriers, the walls, the fences that separate communities are still there, 21 years on. Um, uh, The peace wall, the longest standing peace wall in Belfast was, was built more than 50 years ago, and it's now standing longer than the Berlin Wall stood as a divide between East and West Germany. So that that sense of the journey of devolution and where are we now? A bit of a mixed bag. So now for the good news, um, Northern Ireland holds the world record for the longest period of time without a government. So for three years from 2017 until 2020, we had no government. that's not the good news. The good news is that despite this, with the help of the political parties, um, the political parties having assistance from the British and Irish governments, we've managed to resurrect the institutions again back in January, halting that slow decay and stagnation in public services. So so the good news is we managed to get things back up and running again. But in terms of people's focus on the present and what, what the future holds, While the institutions are back up and running again, Uh, the focus is very much, as we've heard already from Laura and from Michael, in terms of the implications of both Brexit and particularly for Northern Ireland, a very important um, anniversary next year. 2021 will be the 100th anniversary of the creation of the state of Northern Ireland and that's resulted in growing calls for a referendum on a reunification of Ireland. Both the Brexit result, like Scotland, Northern Ireland voted to remain and this centenary um, anniversary coming up have, have both contributed to those growing calls for a referendum and some of you may have already seen the Constitution Unit's working group on unification referendums on the island of Ireland interim report that, that came out last week. So while as a group, um, as a working group, we don't believe that a referendum's imminent, um, we think that it would be highly unwise for a referendum to be called without a plan in place um, that could be agreed with both governments. And when you think about that and then you peek forward, what does the future for devolution look like in Northern Ireland? It's really possible now to imagine in 2021, a very chaotic Brexit um, having very negative economic effects in Northern Ireland and far from delivering that um, Nirvana of the best of both worlds, which was what was said about Northern Ireland with the Northern Ireland protocol deal. There's the possibility that the contested nature of um, the centenary events next year and the outworkings of the Brexit transition period coming to an end and that border in the Irish Sea adding further momentum to those calls for a referendum and what would that mean um, for, for devolution? Well, if it would be difficult in the longer term to resist demands for a border poll, would it mean eventually that you would have devolution from Dublin instead of devolution from London? Um, And that's not something that's really been thought about. It's it's presented as quite a binary thing at the minute, a United Ireland or the status quo, but what that shape of a United Ireland might look like is something that's not been considered in any real depth yet. Um, And I suppose I'll conclude by saying that devolution in Northern Ireland has always been different from the rest of the UK. So the peaking forward bit is going to feel quite different as well. It's neither been a process nor an event, in, in Northern Ireland, to to re-coin a well-used phrase, I tend to say that it's, it's just a vehicle and not a destination and the vehicle's forever breaking down and that's the relationships or it's forever running out of gas and that's the money, but it's a vehicle in which everybody seems to clap when the ignition's turned for the third or fourth time and the engine eventually kicks in. So where the future takes us, who knows.
0: Thank you, Cathy, and for that wonderful metaphor at the end about the stuttering vehicle in Northern Ireland. Um, Now, our last speaker is John Denham. Um, John, Laura McAllister described Wales, I think, as the quiet one in the devolution story. England might perhaps be described as the sleeping giant, but a sleeping giant which perhaps is beginning to wake up. John, over to you.
5: I'm just going to make a few points. Thank you, Robert. And yes, the obvious point, listening to the description of the processes in the other three parts of the union is of course how little England has responded at all to any of the changes since devolution. So my first point would simply be that 20 years after devolution, England now clearly has its own domestic policies. We have the highest higher education fees anywhere in the world, for example, for a a public higher education system, different schools policies, different social care policy significant differences in responses to COVID. Um, Yet, Labour, though doing devolution, made no changes to England apart from the establishment of the Mayor and Assembly in London. And so today, 20 years on, England is not just run by the Union government still, it still has no machinery of English government, it has no ministerial responsibility for coordinating English policy, there is no ministerial accountability to English MPs. It's in this very odd position of being part of a parliament that is of course predominantly English, but which fulfills none of the functions of a national parliament. And as all the academic and parliamentary studies have shown, the very limited English veto provided by English votes on English laws has given England neither a voice nor a legislative programme. The second area where nothing has changed is that centralism was always a key feature of the unitary union state, and that continues. So England remains the most centralised nation in Europe, if you measure it by the proportion of finance controlled locally or raised locally. The very limited moves towards regionalisation under Labour or deals with cities and elected mayors under the Conservatives have actually transferred very few powers and resources out of Whitehall, and none of course by right of devolution, or right to obtain those powers, and they've all been more about getting local stakeholders to buy into Whitehall priorities than actually building up local autonomy. And I wouldn't be the only one who suggested that the the pandemic has revealed a union state which is neither able to govern England from the centre nor willing to disperse power. But it's worth saying that that's not a product just of this particular group of politicians who are in charge of the union government. This is a very long-standing approach to the governance of England. The third point, I think, is is that... I 15 years since any party won all three mainland nations, and 10 since any party won two. and I think the dissolution of union politics into four separate political spaces is very advanced. Each party is, con- party is contested by different parties, fought largely on different issues, and different parties win, and in that sense England's politics are as distinct from the politics of any other part of the union as those parts of the union are distinct from each other. Now, over the same period of time though, what I call political Englishness, the rise of a group of people who emphasize their English identity, which didn't exist back in in 2001, is now significant. It was this group of people focused on English interests and not just Euro skeptic, but union skeptic too, was the decisive force both in conservative victory in England. So there's been a change in politics in England. However, England's major political parties have always seen themselves as British parties doing British politics. And the oddity is they're continuing to do this when actual British politics, in terms of politics being the same in every part of the union, has never been weaker. And the idea of Britain itself as a unifying identity is weaker. Fourth point is that England is never named in political discourse. So a Labour front spokesman talking about the NHS in England will never say NHS England. They'll talk about the NHS in this country or maybe even in Britain, misleadingly. Government announcements on the budget uh, last week that were specific to England were not identified as for England in treasury tweets and uh, communications. And England's governance is never discussed. So the, the dominance of British unionism has prevented a serious debate about England. Conservative Anglo-centric British nationalism, of course, regards the union as if, what the, the augmentation of England. So England needs no existence of its own. And Labour, in part, has always seen its historic role as defeating English conservatism. And so for that reason, Labour has never really wanted England to have a political identity of its own. And so that's left a situation where England is, 20 years after devolution, the only part of the union where people have not been asked nor offered a referendum on how they wish to be governed in the past 20 years. So we're asked to talk slightly about the future. Uh, It's quite hard, of course, always to predict, I mean, there is sporadic talk about devolution within England, but no coalescence around actual options. And notwithstanding the row with Andy Burnham in Manchester, there's actually no concerted organised pressure in England's localities for change. And I think change on a radical scale is unlikely to happen without much more significant cross-party working at local government or in business, or maybe things like universities. The crisis in the union may provoke change. Now, on the one hand, you've got Boris Johnson doubling down on this muscular unionism, which from where I stand looks somewhat suicidal for the union, but that's what he's chosen to do. Uh, Labour of course is talking about a federal future and although that might be partly to give themselves something to say ahead of the holy Root elections which is neither independence nor the status quo, it does perhaps reflect a deeper acknowledgement which is beginning to emerge in England that the union must be must be refounded in some way if it is going to survive. The third possibility for the future is of course the not unrealistic possibility that a future general election would throw up a non-conservative majority in the United Kingdom but not a non-conservative majority in England and even if the procedures of English votes for English laws could be set on one side I think using Scottish and Welsh and Northern Irish MPs to impose policy on England would soon provoke a real crisis of legitimacy uh, and force a wider constitutional debate so those are three possible ways in which the debate that has not happened yet might uh, might open up. Um, we had to be very careful about opinion polling on any topic where there isn't actually a live public debate. We found that um, with the uh, European Union referendum, as I think Michael's already mentioned. But as things stand, it does look as though if... The people of England were asked, they would support effectively a dual mandate Commons, one in which English MPs sat as England on English issues from time to time, and devolution to localities that they recognise, but definitely not regionalisation. Now that might change if a constitutional debate took place uh, and people looked more seriously at the issues, but that's what the polling points towards at the moment. The final point I'll just make about context is that Um, Obviously devolution was made possible by EU membership, the Northern Ireland agreement was made possible by EU membership, and that leaving the EU, largely an English decision, threatens those relationships. On the other hand, the next seven days is probably, in my view, the period of peak hard Brexit. The hard Brexiteers will never be as powerful as they are at the moment. And I think under almost any scenario, public sentiment in England, as much as anywhere else, will move back towards a more pragmatic relationship within our European neighbours. And that might also change.
0: Uh, John, sorry, I lost you just at the end, but I think you finished. Yes. Um, So uh, we've had. Very strong. I
4: have finished, sorry,
0: yes. Yes, Yes. forgive me. We've had very strong uh, opening contributions from all our panelists. Uh, I see some questions are beginning to come through. Uh, In about quarter of an hour's time, we'll come to Q&A from the audience. So those of you who want to ask questions, please uh, put them to Alan Rennick in the chat. Um, But we'll have a a brief discussion with the panel um, in which we'll look strongly to the future uh, and several of our speakers uh, have mentioned the possibility of independence or in the case of Northern Ireland, a possible referendum on unification uh, with the South. But let's begin uh, by discussing how the existing devolution settlements might be might be strengthened. John mentioned at the end, uh, Uh, proposals for a federal future. And I think Gordon Brown recently has intervened to this effect. Um, So is federalism one answer? And what would a federal UK look like? Michael, um, you're a great expert on federalism uh, comparatively. Would you like to kick off on this one?
1: Yes, politicians always come back to federalism when they don't know what to do about the Constitution. It happened in Gladstone's time in the 19th century. Nobody's ever explained to me what a UK Federation would look like, uh, including the recent interventions from Malcolm Rifkin and, and other people. If it's going to be federal, it's got to have two elements. One, you've got to do something about England, not say we'll think about that later. And secondly, you've got to take on the doctrine of Westminster supremacy. Sovereignty is actually another matter, but the doctrine that Westminster will always be supreme. Uh, in a federal system, there'll be occasions when Westminster cannot get its own way, and the court will rule that Westminster is not competent in devolved matters. Without those, it's not federalism, and none of the proposals that I've seen actually include those two elements. What we can see, however, uh, and is more realistic, is a more federalizing interpretation of the existing settlements. Uh, the supremacy doctrine, as upheld by the Supreme Court in the Miller case, was an extreme interpretation Westminster supremacy, just completely unhelpful, trashing the Sewell Convention, which was the way that we managed to fudge that issue. So that understanding of the Constitution, I think, is more important than trying to get a fully fledged federal constitution, which I think is just going to be an illusion. It may come at the end of the day, but that's not the place to start.
0: So just to be clear on the Supreme Court ruling, uh, you would like to see the Sewell Convention made justiciable? Yes. Yeah. And you mentioned no one uh, who advocates federalism has yet been able to explain what to do about England. So let's jump straight to John. Uh, John, if federalism is the solution, do you have an answer to what to do about England?
5: Uh, Well, it seems to me that there there are two things that we have to deliver. One is that England needs to be in charge of its own domestic affairs to the same extent as the other parts of the Union. So those who define the problem as breaking up England seem to me to be starting from completely the wrong place. It is how power with England should be distributed. But the one thing I think we do know is that a union government deciding to impose regions on England will go down like a lead balloon and will disappear as it uh, did previously so England needs its own if you like domestic sovereignty the second challenge obviously is that we have to evolve constitutional arrangements that prevents England claiming to speak for the union when it feels like it which is precisely what's happening at the moment with Boris Johnson now I think rather like Michael you can the idea that there's one big bang moment where you have designed a new constitution and all the bits of it fit together in a different sort of patterns seems to be quite unlikely. But it does seem to me that in your machinery inter inter intergovernment machinery, in your financial relationships within the union, in the rights of the devolved nations to their autonomy, you can evolve a system in which England both, if you like, becomes more English and less UK, but also is prevented or constrained from acting on behalf of the union as a whole. And that's, I think, how we need to look at the different measures that might come into place. Um, I think if you move forward for example, as I suggested with the dual mandate parliament, though that creates um, a bit of downtime for MPs coming from other parts of the union, you begin to see how that then opens up the possibility for different parliamentary coordination between the different parts of the union maybe in a reformed House of Lords. So I think sort of strategic incrementalism is what we need rather than the idea of a single one-off refounding the union.
0: So, just to be clear, in terms of what to do about England in moving towards federalism, your answer would be, don't break it up into regional units, an English parliament, but an English parliament which is part of the Westminster parliament.
5: Yes, and that's partly that latter point, because that has been the settled view about English MPs making English laws since the devolution was done. So you government, but never in any polling I've seen of a majority for it. but you do get people wanting to see English MPs fully in charge of their legislative process. Now, I think how you do devolution with it, decide, uh, I do think that if you have got that sort of Commons, it opens the door to a, House of Lords or the Second Chamber, in which both the governments of the nations are represented, the UK government is represented, but also people from the localities, not just of England, but from Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland as well.
0: Thank you. Um, Now, uh, while staying with improvements to devolution, we'll come on to independence uh, next. What do our panelists think the UK government can do to hold the union together. Uh, People have spoken about the muscular unionism uh, of the Johnson government. Is that the right approach? Uh, Laura, can we come to you um, and tell us how that's viewed in Wales?
2: Well, um, I've often thought that it will be unionism that destroys the union rather than nationalism, I have to say, you know, and and I, I think that applies to both of the large unionist parties, you know, who've fairly consistently failed to think strategically about the union in the way that John described there and you know whilst I might disagree with aspects of John's idea for a, a an english parliament because i i fear for the over centralization of a nation as large as england you know with such significant regional differences and population bases at least that is a interpretation of how a federal uk might work that gives a voice a proper voice to to england but you know i, I think um, I think there are a couple of really fundamental issues here. We have a machinery of intergovernmental relations and even interparliamentary relations in the UK that, quite frankly, has been shown to be uh, defunct. Um, and the reason it's been defunct is because there's been no investment or belief or confidence or integrity around it. So, you know, we've seen it in the pandemic um, in terms of uh, intergovernmental relations, um, even around COBRA for that matter. But we've seen it a long time before that. And it's always been my fear that post devolution big parts of the state, the UK state, changed very radically. And yet the powerhouse of the UK state around Whitehall and Westminster changed very little. And there was almost a kind of... um, you know see no evil hear no evil approach everybody uh, refused to grasp some of the really significant constitutional and political changes that were happening and as a result I think we saw that played out in terms of a, a really almost dismissive model of intergovernmental relations which which is actually if anything uh, given a boost to uh, a demand for greater powers certainly in Wales and Maybe um, Michael will argue for for greater independence in Scotland. So, so my point really is that I can't see I can't see anything particularly constructive coming from the UK government unless there's a really fundamental change in mindset and mentality. Because machinery is one thing, and intergovernmental relations and so on is machinery, but that hasn't worked. And the reason that hasn't worked is because there hasn't been a conciliatory and constructive and positive mentality around the benefits of keeping the union. So we've almost created a polarisation of political debate on the back of that.
0: Thank you, Laura. Um, Now, Alan Rennick tells me we've got lots of questions. Um, So to allow plenty of time for them, let's go now to Q&A from the audience. Um, And Alan, would you like to uh, read out for us your first two or three questions?
3: Uh, yes, thank you. So lots of really good questions uh, coming in. I'll start with uh, some biggies uh, just to get you going with, with something simple. So um, <clears throat> Matt Dix asks, can the union survive or are we just administering palliative care? And let me just put a couple of other questions in this first round uh, to uh, partly just to give you time to think about how you're going to respond to that one. Um, <clears throat> so Vernon Bogdener. Uh, distinguished professor of uh, British uh, government of course, uh, asks, can the panel comment on whether they agree with Boris Johnson that devolution has been a disaster outside Northern Ireland? In Scotland it was hoped that it would kill separatism stone dead, it has clearly not done so. And finally for this round, uh, Rocho Ferro Adams uh, asks, Um, about federalism uh, and whether federalism might be the solution. So Rocha suggests that federalism may be the best prospect for peace and a workable UK, um, but would parties be willing to work together to achieve such a vision?
0: Very good. Well, uh, Rothios question we partly covered, I think, in the discussion about federalism, Um, but those panelists who haven't commented, feel free to chip in on that. But on the first two questions, let's, let's go straight away to Michael Keating. Um, can the Union survive or are we now on palliative care? Michael.
1: Well, a strikingly feature of current political argument across the United Kingdom is that everybody is talking about Union. Scottish nationalists are talking about the European Union. Irish nationalists, including now Sinn Féin, are in favour of the European Union. Uh, when Alex Simon was talking about independence in 2014, he said, we're part of six unions, and we're only gonna leave one, we're gonna, we're gonna keep the monarchical union, the currency union, uh, uh, and so on. Uh, union is a broad principle that, uh, according to which the world operates, and, and the only people who don't seem to understand this, are the hard Brexiters who think that you can have a totally independent sovereign nation states that are not independent, interdependent on, on others. What has to change is how we, Think of the union, and there was a reference, I think, with it uh, to Laura, to the present muscular unionism or the neo unionism, as I've called it, that's been developing from a number of years. It sees the United Kingdom as some kind of unitary state with devolution added onto it rather than a plurinational union where sovereignty and nationality themselves are divided. And strangely enough, before devolution, the unionists didn't understand the need for devolution, but they did understand the nature of the United Kingdom as a plurinational state in which the union means different things in different places. The, 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 the union in, in Northern Ireland is not the same as the union in Scotland or in Wales. The union in England is something else. It's a deep plurality of understandings of unionism that is really necessary. And instead of that, we've got this new unionism that says there's Britishness, which is the same everywhere. And then below that unity, you get these local variations. It's never been like that. It's never worked like that. You've got the notion of British values, whereby the union appropriates all the higher values, democracy, fairness, and so on, as though the nationalists were not also liberals and Democrats and all the rest of it. And as long as unionism then is converting itself into a nationalism, which it is, it's becoming a nationalism and not a traditional unionism, then I think it's deeply in, 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 in trouble. As for whether devolution is a disaster, uh, no, I don't think it has been. In fact, in most respects, it's been a success. I never regarded the aim of devolutionists to kill nationalism stone dead. George Robertson is said to have uh, made that comment. I I haven't found that quotation. Maybe it's apocryphal. And undoubtedly, many people in the Labour Party saw it as a way of heading off the SNP. And indeed, without it, then nationalism would certainly have have, have thrived uh, in Scotland. Um, But it's something else. It is uh, a way of governing union. It's a way of thinking about union. And if we think of it in that respect and think about unionism in the way that I've just uh, expressed it, then the union is not finished. Uh, In its present form, it's finished. I'm picking up Laura's comment, I think it was Laura, who said something that I think is spot on, that the greatest threat to the union is unionism. It's this kind of unitary type of unionism, but a different way of thinking about union. And here, of course, the EU dimension is critical, because take away the EU framework, it's very difficult to make the union work, very difficult, because it underpinned the devolution settlement in all kinds of ways and thinking about the European Union provided a template for thinking about the United Kingdom as a purely national union uh, as well. Uh, taking all I've said into account then union as a principle is inexorable, it's there. We just don't need to identify it with a kind of unitarist approach that the UK government has been taking of late.
0: Thank you. Laura, is there anything more you'd like to add from the Welsh perspective?
2: Well, I mean, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I think the point about the European Union as being the adhesive that has kept the, the union together is a really fundamental one. And and I won't take up much time on that. But one thing that's fairly obvious is if you get rid of some of the glue that has, stuck, that has allowed us to stick together and you don't replace it with anything. And actually, even beyond that, you then introduce um, legislation uh, like the withdrawal bill. Which, which effectively rides roughshod on constitutions around devolution and on the powers that were already in the, uh, in the uh, home of the devolved uh, governments. And I think that is an incredibly risky strategy, which you know does fundamentally undermine the union.
0: And Cathy, if we can apply um, the remarks about devolution being a disaster uh, to Northern Ireland, how would they be viewed there?
4: Is it, I mean, I, that takes back to, takes you back to the question that I asked, which was, what's it for? So I, I'm able to articulate very clearly that, that against the measures of, of the reason why it was introduced in Northern Ireland, you can say it's a bit of a mixed bag. I think that's a harder question to answer elsewhere in the, U, the UK. So what, why did you introduce devolution in the first place? and is it a disaster? Well, that depends. Did it do what you wanted? And I don't think that there was enough of a constitutional conversation about some of these things before we ended up on that devolution journey in the vehicle or whatever, but in the context of Of um, Northern Ireland. It's a very awkward question to say um, can it survive because half of the population don't want it to survive and it's also an awkward question because we had a British government up until the mid-1990s that declared that the UK government had no selfish strategic nor economic interest in Northern Ireland, putting uh, its cards on the table very firmly at that point and then a Good Friday Agreement which implied that it wasn't the British government's job to hold the Union together in Northern Ireland, but to submit to the will of the people through a unification referendum, if that's what the people wanted. So it's quite an awkward conversation and quite an awkward evolution of where we are now with Boris Johnson declaring, you know, this Minister for the Union and and protecting the Union, including Northern Ireland in it, being priority number one, because that sits at odds with both the spirit and the ethos of the Good Friday Agreement.
0: Thank you. Let's go uh, now to our next round of questions, Alan.
3: Uh, thank you. Some questions now relating to the structure of the union, I guess, and the role of different uh, elements within that structure. So Silla Cullen asks, um, there has been an argument made that, especially in Brexit negotiations, the meetings of ministers representing the devolved regions of the UK are not sufficiently prominent. Is there a case for strengthening the remit of these ministers? Uh, then we have George Moran, who asks, a f- um or says, a further fundamental point is that the competences of subnational governments have to be guaranteed in some way to ensure UK government cannot unilaterally change them. Uh, uh, so so I, I guess a, a question there about whether that can be done and how, how it could be done. Um, and then Nick Stone also asks a question related to that, uh, particularly thinking about Scotland and the fact that the, it's the UK government that has agency on the decision of whether uh, there can be a referendum on independence in Scotland. So asking uh, what are the implications of um, uh, the agency of the UK government in that respect?
0: So we'll come to that in a moment, but starting with the first question, Um, about whether the ministers from the devolved governments in the Brexit negotiations should have had a stronger voice. Laura, um, can you give us a view from Wales?
2: Well, I guess the best way is to communicate what has been said by ministers in Wales around this, and certainly by our Brexit lead, um, the Council General and uh, Jeremy Miles. You know, it's very rare to hear a, a minister from a unionist party speak in a language that could easily be coming from a nationalist uh, politician but we've seen a fair bit of that from Welsh government ministers in the course of the last 18 months and it does it does originate in the issue that i spoke about in my last contribution the the mentality and the mindset over how relationships should work between governments in this case or indeed between parliaments in other cases and i think what a term that sticks out for me and i think this was used by by jeremy miles himself was we were seeing the manifestation of a kind of grace and favour model of devolution where uh, things were given to Wales in this case, rather than shared or um, any kind of balanced contribution. And, And I think that's a kind of fundamental political error on the part of the UK government, because There was, and maybe we've moved beyond this point in Scotland, but there was certainly in Wales an opportunity for a degree of collaboration over how we managed the Brexit process, particularly given the way that the vote had gone in Wales and the fact that we had a a unionist party in government in Wales. But I think a lot of that goodwill and a lot of that solidity over a potential approach has been dissipated. And, And I think that's a really reckless strategy, you know, which poses really significant Uh, damage and in fact involving ministers certainly from the Welsh government I mean there's a different political dynamic clearly with SNP ministers and again in Northern Ireland there's another different political dynamic but in the case of Welsh ministers I think that could have been potentially a fruitful and cooperative relationship but to have Labour ministers saying so categorically that relationships have broken down gives you some kind of indication of how badly that's gone wrong.
0: And just coming to the second question from George Moran about would it make a difference if the competence of the uh, sub-national governments was guaranteed? Um, I assume that under the reserve powers model in Wales, there is now a clearer guarantee, but that risks being undermined uh, through the Brexit negotiations and how the powers being returned from the EU um, are now being devolved or retained at the centre. Is that that right? right?
2: Yes, I think it does. And, and that has been rehearsed in some of the political conversations in Wales. And, and it actually relates back, doesn't it, to the question that was asked in the first round about ha- has devolution been a disaster? Now, aside from the fact, you know, it depends what you aim to get out of devolution to, to be able to answer that effectively. But, you know, there's, there's been this kind of arrogance even to pose that question, um, because it's mixing up government performance at the basic level with a constitutional scenario. And, you know, very, very rarely are questions like that asked about established political institutions and we, we get it a lot in Wales of course, partly because there's been such deep ignorance over um, what the devolution settlement is all about and people say things like, I don't like what the Welsh Government's doing, get rid of devolution and you know it's it's the equivalent isn't it of saying you don't like the Johnson Government, therefore get rid of the Houses of Parliament. Uh, but, but, you know, the very fact that we're having those kind of conversations is, is incredible, really, after two decades of devolution.
0: Now, for the third question from, uh, I think it was Norman Stone, about whether the UK government has agency um, in trying to head off an independence referendum in Scotland. Um, let's turn to Michael for that. Michael, can the UK government block Indy Ref two?
1: Well, yes, but it gets back to my comments about the two interpretations of the Constitution. I could give you an argument saying that successive UK governments have agreed that Scotland is self-determining, Scotland could become independent, it's only an argument about when and how, but in principle successive prime ministers said yes. If that's the case, if that's the Constitutional rule, there must be a way of making that real, and what more democratic and legitimate way of making that real could be winning a, a, an election under proportional representation and then staging a, a referendum. That's that's one argument. That's a broad reading of the Constitution. It's the kind of argument that the Canadian Supreme Court brought to bear on the Quebec question. Just Don't just look at the printed word of the Constitution because you don't need judges to do that. Interpret the Constitution in the light of our understanding of how it works. The other interpretation is the Westminster Doctrine There's what's written in the law and what Westminster says is the law, that's it. That's the reading that the Supreme Court gave in the Miller case and its arguments about the devolution Aspects. Those are two arguments. On the one side, it is true in law, the Westminster is Supreme. On the other side, there's a perfectly good argument, and it goes back a long way in Scotland that Westminster supremacy is just an investment of Westminster itself. You can argue both ways. The fact is, of course, that procedurally a Section 23 order is necessary. Uh, the, the Scottish Government has accepted that those are the rules, and Westminster will then control that. Uh, and you can argue the Constitution around in many, many ways, but the key at the moment is the Westminster veto. Now, there's a lot of argument about how you can get around that dilemma in Scotland at the moment. Could there be a consultative referendum, and a glorified opinion poll, and So on? maybe there's some leeway there, but there seems to be very little leeway. Uh, and so we could be heading, heading towards a serious conflict here, uh, as they are in Catalonia. We won't get the violence in Catalonia and all that, but at least we could get it the same kind of dilemma here as to whether any kind of referendum, whatever, would be possible. Because if it's not, then that is going to cause a serious political crisis. Assuming the nation win the election, of course, we're making that assumption. We we, we shouldn't necessarily make that assumption. But in that scenario, we could get that political crisis.
0: We're coming to our last 10 minutes. And I'm going to, uh, before we leave, put a question to you, which uh, I'm not sure anyone's asked, but I'm sure it's in the minds of many in the audience. Please, Robert, will you ask Michael whether he thinks Scotland will be independent in five or 10 years time? So forgive me, Michael, it's the bookmaker's question. What are the odds?
1: i got a £5 note for every time I ask that question. <laughs> I, 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 the, 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 where we are at the moment, I think the unionism has, has lost the argument, and nationalism has not won the argument, because there's various reasons why unionism is in crisis, but nationalism still has to answer the question about the currency, the public finances, the border, Scotland being in the EU, outside the EU. Now, in the past, we've always been able to say, we'll muddle through and find some third way and Devo Max or whatever. That, because of Brexit, largely, that is becoming more difficult, either in the EU or you're not. Scotland is not going to get the Northern Ireland kind of arrangement, partly in the EU, because neither the British government nor the EU is interested uh, in that. And that makes independence uh, more probable. But if independence does come about in Scotland, it won't be independence in the sense that Brexit is UK independence, because everybody in Scotland realizes that we're part of an independence, interdependent system. We share an island with England and Wales. We share these islands with a number of jurisdictions, and we're part of Europe and we're next door to Europe, uh, and so there will be some way to try and find an independent Scotland that recognizes the interdependence of relationships in the modern world. What that will look like, I really don't know. It could be very difficult and and, and, and conflictable. But if Scotland does become independent, that's how it will be. And remember, the Republic of Ireland took many years to become independent fully. It was a gradual process, and they only fully became independent by entering into the European Union, thereby sharing their sovereignty with a wider union. I think that will be the future of Scotland, and it will not look like a traditional state, because Those old fashioned models of sovereignty, they just don't work. They're out of date and they don't provide an appropriate model for statehood, either for Scotland or for the United Kingdom.
0: Thank you. Now we're coming into our last five minutes almost. So I'm going to go around the other members of the panel and ask them one final question. If Scotland does become independent, what are the consequences for the rest of the UK? Cathy, can we come to you next? What would be the consequences in Northern Ireland and possible support for unification with the Republic if Scotland were to become independent.
4: So I think after the first Scottish referendum, that was when you began to see um, a a more involved conversation around the possibility of a united ireland people think it was was more brexit but actually it was the first scottish referendum that that kick-started that in a much more meaningful way if, if scotland were to become independent i think that 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 that, that it would move to more of a crescendo in terms of calls for a referendum but the shape of a united ireland would then begin to come under much more scrutiny because as it stands now the options are presented as a United Ireland, however that might look, or the status quo. And I think Michael's absolutely right. It will never be what what, what traditional sort of sovereignty would have looked like in the past. We'll, we'll work very much more on the totality of relationships because the islands are bound together in different ways. So you may still have, under a United Ireland, devolved institutions in the North but devolved from Dublin as opposed to devolved from London. It could be a unitary state with a, a central legislature and a government, or it could be some sort of federal or confederal structure and all sorts of variations within. What's interesting to me is listening to Michael talk about um, potential independence, but on an island. And the interconnectedness between that and that's exactly what we have on the island of Ireland, separation but connectedness between them. So there's a lot to learn from the infrastructure of the Good Friday Agreement that was hard fought over about the internal arrangements that need to be put in place, the north-south arrangements that need to be put in place and the east-west relationships that need to be put in place and it it connects to the question earlier on about intergovernmental relations. We put some of the structures in place but we paid lip service to them and, and no they had no real meaning my my sense would be you don't make the same mistake twice and if scotland became independent the implications for northern ireland and ireland and the totality of relationships would be something that would be taken a lot more seriously than the intergovernmental relations have been to date
0: thank you now laura coming to wales if scotland became independent what would be the consequences for the union between england and wales
2: well, a couple of points for me. Um, first of all, you know, going back to the point about federalism, which I think would always be a more attractive um, model for a lot of popular opinion in Wales. But, but none, none of us have actually said the obvious thing, which is, you know, it's incredibly hard whilst the independence debate is so uh, trenchant in Scotland to talk seriously about federalism, whilst that still is a potential scenario but I think for, for the case of Wales you know I think Northern Ireland is equally as important in terms of how public opinion might shift in in Wales, as is a potential move to Scottish independence, if there is the sense, Cathy's talked a lot about what the potential for that is, but if there's a sense that Northern Ireland um, uh, could be embarking on a reunification, then I think that would change the debate quite fundamentally, because then we're left with that rump UK, but even more of a rump in that it's purely England and Wales. And I think that would probably give a significant fillip to the independence movement in Wales. Um, What would potentially damage the independence movement in Wales because the movement's in its infancy clearly is whether that process towards Scottish independence has been difficult or bloody or violent or any of the things that could happen as as, as has been seen in Catalonia and equally how initially successful Scottish independence looks because I think there is this trepidation clearly in Wales over economic um, factors uh, more than anything But, but but I think overall there's There's become a much more mature debate about not being left with a default constitutional settlement in Wales, which would which would happen were Scotland to become independent. And that's where I think the independence movement currently is getting its traction, that it's almost anticipating a scenario where that where a a kind of England and Wales might be the only uh, option on the table. And that's looking increasingly unpopular amongst the population.
0: Thank you. So it's time to draw this to a close. Um, Apologies for the poor internet connection um, of some of us um, and the interruptions, but I'd like in closing to thank all of our speakers. I'd like to thank uh, you, the audience, um, with apologies that we couldn't include all your excellent questions. Thank you, Alan, for being question master. And we'll let all of you know when the recording for this event is available, and we hope you might want to share it with others. Finally, we'd encourage you, if you aren't already signed up, to sign up for news of future Constitution Unit events via our website. We've got one more event next week, a seminar to discuss the interim report of the Working Group on Unification Referendums in Ireland, which is being organized next Thursday lunchtime by our colleagues in Belfast. But this is the last of our Unit monthly seminars this year. So thank you all for attending. Best wishes for a happy Christmas And let us hope for better tidings and a happier new year in 2021. Thank you, all of you, and goodbye.